0: This is Radio Free Bay Ridge. All right, welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. You might actually be able to hear um, the rest of the Radio Free Bay Ridge team is downstairs partying. It is a couple of hours till the new year for us. Meanwhile,
1: we're up here giving you the latest political news from Bay
0: Ridge. Indeed. So we have the second part of our Congressional Contenders series and the first that's actually active and running in the primary.
1: This is going to be Michael DeVito, who we both know from Fight Back Bay Ridge.
0: Mm-hmm. He's been to a bunch of South Brooklyn activist meetings. So he's one of the first people who kind of reached out to us to be like, well, when am I coming on? <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there for Michael's interview. Um, Thanks, but Dan. I was working. I do. Okay, I know. We got to keep the lights on.
1: Got to keep the lights yeah, on. Yeah,
0: this, this isn't like something that we're doing full time. Somebody
1: asked me that the other day.
0: Really? That yeah, I listens... was like, I wish. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we really wish we were doing this full time. No. So I had work on a weekend. So Mary was kind enough to fill in for the interview. Although I went through a lot of editing for this one, too, because we spoke with Michael for about two and a half hours. I I apologized to Dan, (laughs) you know, but yeah, it was a long interview. And so we really encourage you guys to go on to the website and check him out on social media because there's a lot more than what we're able to cover in this shorter one hour interview.
1: So without further ado, let's get on with the interview. Michael, thank you for coming.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And we've also got Mary with us today filling in for Dan. Happy to be here.
2: I'd like to start off by thanking Boyd Melson, Mm. who just endorsed me. I have managed to find a lifelong friend in a place that I didn't expect that there would be one. Boyd is an incredible human being. He is a larger-than-life passionate, loving person, and that type of energy is what's missing in the conversation today. We're cut from the same cloth, so to, to have him endorse me is really humbling. And it's also just completely strengthened my resolve. I was told you kind of don't get into politics to make friends. And uh, and here we are, we've become friends. And I believe that that's something that's kind of missing in our politics today, because mm-hmm. statesmen y- years ago would come together. And that's really where things got done. Uh, it was in those trusting environments where they did good for all people. Mm-hmm. So, Boyd, thank you, brother. I love you, man. There are seven Democrats that are running for New York's 11th. Yeah. There is an incredible amount of activity and energy um, and the level of activism and the level of engagement and, and that everyone is now plugged in. There's a wave and there's an energy and there's a, an important mission that's ahead of us. So if anything comes from there being a multitude of personalities in this particular race, it'll be that there is choice and there's conversation to be had which is incredible for our democracy. And it allows me to feel like there is hope.
1: One of the things you brought up just made me think, particularly, you know, in the last 20, 30, 40 years, people have started to have to spend so much more time fundraising and so much more time back in their district. And there's not
2: that same time to grow those relationships in D.C. It seems to be that there's an unwritten rule that the person with the most money should be the person who's the candidate Mm. because campaigns cost so much. I suppose there is argument to say that, you know, you need to have a lot of money. That's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, one of the candidates uh, who has raised the most money himself has said that he believes that it is disgusting Mm. that there is so much money that needs to be raised in politics. As Stephen Covey says, relationships happen at the speed of trust. Mm. And, you know, that trust takes time to build. People who are in the community and doing the work are the people that are positioned to truly make change happen. I'm not coming into this from some other sphere. I'm somebody who has every day gotten up and gone to work to help my community. So I am a senior director for a nonprofit. Initially may not sound very appealing. The reality is that I help kids get reconnected to education. I help them get connected to the workforce. And what that really means is meeting people where they are, mm-hmm. being aware of every single obstacle and every single potential challenge that a young person has experienced. And that experience is very different than my experience. So like as an example, many who are disenchanted with the fact that a young person can't put their cell phone away, And I Mm. think to myself, goodness, I wouldn't be able to get through a minute without that phone. If I was 15 years old, I don't know how I would have been able to to make that work. It's about helping a young person understand and doing that through their lens. I have, uh, over the course of the last 13 years, helped usher some 2,000 young people to the finish line of getting a diploma and setting goals for their future, helping young people get connected to some sort of training and credentialing. Showing them how to get to college. And that has been in helping some of the city's most vulnerable youth. Uh, So what I like to say is that for a really long time, I have been navigating the bureaucracy and the policies that, that come down from up above. And some of that has to do with helping a kid find a place to live because they've been homeless and they've been couch surfing. Other times, that's about coming out of foster care. And other times, that's about trying to figure out a pathway after they've been an addict. Uh, And they went through recovery and and how are you that support person and how I've been that support person has been up at two o'clock in the morning and I'm answering a text or a phone call because because that's what was needed from me. And when I talk about that stuff, it's a little hard to not get emotional as I'm sitting here right now. I'm realizing like I'm thinking of one person in particular, his success story and knowing that he's since even come out to volunteer for the campaign and he's in the video that uh, that you guys see on the website. All of this does intersect. Like I say that when you help a young person, you help an entire family. I never expected anything back. And I guess I'm, I'm afraid of using the word humbling too much because it may sound like a, an easy way out. <laughs> yeah. It really is just at every turn feeling exceptionally happy to be part of this, you know? So, in addition to that, I have undertaken a pretty large task of addressing the out of school, out of work population. Out of school and out of work can mean a lot of things. It could mean that you have graduated and you do have a high school credential and that you just haven't been able to find sustainable employment. Right. It could also mean that you don't have a high school credential, that you're you know nowhere near it, maybe not even reading at a grade level, mm-hmm. which I have some experience about. We'll probably get to that at some point if we start talking about my roots. Mm-hmm. So I'm proud to say that this year we launched a coalition of eight Staten Island-based agencies community-based organizations, the College of Staten Island, and the Staten Island Chamber of Commerce. And together, we are addressing the out-of-school and out-of-work population. What essentially this means is that there is no wrong road to success. So you could be a young person who's been underserved, that has fallen off, And if you get connected to one of these organizations, we're going to be able to put you on a pathway to success, providing them with meaningful employment opportunities for the purpose of making them financially stable and economically mobile. And uh, just to talk a little bit about this population and who they are, you know, Staten Island, the statistic is 18%. If you look at the rest of the city, it's actually not the highest And if you look at certain areas in Staten Island, the statistic is higher. It's actually as high as 24% in some of our North Shore neighborhoods. In Staten Island, there are 5,500 young people that are walking around the North Shore of Staten Island now who are out of school and out of work. So that is a really big number. It's actually second to only the Bronx. You know, there's a reason for that. We're on an island. We have some of the longest commute times in the entire country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our young people are struggling to get around. They're struggling to find work and keep work, and they often are not given the same opportunities to get employment. You actually can't go through the Workforce One system if you don't have a high school credential. Mm-hmm. There are so many barriers that are in place, and this coalition is solving that problem. This year, we you know exceeded goals by 20%. Uh, We're looking at funding streams to move the ball forward for next year. Mm -hmm. It's cool because uh, this is what we would call making a population-wide shift in addressing the issue. We are the only borough who is taking this on as a borough. Cool. And so it's it's just, Solidarity. you know, it's, it is, right? And it's also something that's kind of unique about being on Staten Island. Mm-hmm. There are other sister partnerships throughout the city. Like there is a partnership in Lower Manhattan called the Lower East Side Employment Network Lesson. And it's only for Lower Manhattan. Right. And we're doing it for, for all of Staten Island. So it's it's pretty cool. About 18, it is about 18 years ago now, there was this huge study done. Uh, and it was through Bill Gates Foundation and New Visions and, and Bloomberg administration was looking at what's happening and why are we seeing a decrease in the number of young people who are graduating high school? Mm. And, so, and then how do we address that? What it was found is that there were 185,000 kids between the age of 16 and 21 years old who were academically at least one year behind in high school. That is an astronomical number. We literally have a tsunami of young people that are coming our way. And actually there are even more younger kids who are like say seven to 13. And we really have our work cut out for us because there's so many aspects of workforce development. You know, the fact that we're being automated out of jobs, the fact that living wage is constantly being challenged every single day. We have a tax plan that's gonna take away all of these programs and all of these support systems that, that keep people working and learning to work. The programs that are now in place have become institutions. Mm -hmm. They are all built around not just getting a young person back on track. They're built around propelling them forward. So how do we help them build confidence? We do that by providing personal leadership opportunities. How do we help them develop skill? Well, we do that by providing essential skill opportunities. The hard skills. People think that hard skills are, well, I'm going to learn how to program a computer. And really the hard skills are like, how do I get to work on time? And it's not stuff that happens in six months. It's actually stuff that happens over years, Mm -hmm. especially when you have a young person who is at a deficit. These programs have become institutions. And even these programs now are being challenged because they're privatizing education. And, you know, even in just the last city budget, we saw that our programs were being cut because they're trying to create equity and they're raising the charter school money, Mm. you know, by like hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars, uh, which for somebody who's been in this work for a really long time, it's sort of a slap in the face. Yeah. Because we are working as fast as we can with limited resources and making sure that every young person has a mentor and every young person has a direct connection, somebody that can really help them and understand them and meet them where they are every day, uh, where in traditional settings, these young people get lost.
3: Okay. So if elected, what are you going to do to tackle it? So that's
2: a, that's a big question. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's a really great question. And you know I think that it's about doubling down on the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act. This is a huge initiative that had billions of dollars in it. It is completely on the chopping block right now you know, with the tax plan. The Workforce Investment Opportunity Act is basically how money is brought to states. To do things like workforce one initiatives to create opportunities that otherwise would not exist. So it's about training programs, you know, reinvestment to ensure that those training programs exist. Mm-hmm. It's about helping people who are coming out of incarceration. These systems that are in place, we need more support and not less support. And there's a lot of rhetoric that these programs don't work. They say that there aren't the statistics to show that a program like the one that I oversee, like the programs that I oversee work. Sounds
1: like you've seen them working.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to give you a statistic, young people who go through our programs graduate at rates that are like 40% higher than if they stayed in their traditional setting. So if you're a fifth or a sixth year student in high school where you were failing, you have a 19% chance of graduating high school. Right. If you come to a program like the ones that I'm describing, a city transfer school or what we call a Young adult Borough Center, you have a 59% chance of graduating high school. So the level of resources that we need, it's in the millions per year. There aren't enough funding streams at the city and the state level. We need the federal government to step in. The only way the federal government steps in is in the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act and to really make that a robust funding stream Mm -hmm. to ensure that the North Shore of Staten Island, the South Bronx, get the resources that they need. And we're doing this work now. We just don't have enough resources to do it. Mm -hmm. You can take a young person who was In a deficit, did not have a high school diploma, get them to the finish line of that credential, plug them into, say, a certified nurse's assistance program. And in six months' time, that young person could be making $7 above the minimum wage. That's the kind of work that we need to be doing across the country. Yeah. Credentialing programs, not promising a young person that you're going to be able to go to college and you may not be ready to go to college. And then in six months time, that young person is falling off because it's not the support they were getting in the program that they left. Mm -hmm. And they feel again, isolated. They feel again, like a failure. And now they're working another minimum wage job. And they're really just sort of jumping around. uh, We're doing it wrong.
1: A, A family member of mine has a lot of the kinds of problems that you're talking about. And watching that family member leave the residential assistance program they were in and crash land into the, quote, real world, unquote, it's just heartbreaking because you see them put in all this work, and then it it's just gone.
2: Absolutely. And typically, these programs are funded for young people, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody wants to help a young yeah. person, right? And then they age out. S- and then they age out. So we have so many in our district, especially those that have been affected by opioids, mm-hmm. who are 27, 28, 30 years old, they're still living at home. You know, there's no way that they're going to ever be able to get out on their own, and they're ready to take advantage of an opportunity that would allow them to stand up for themselves and to stand up by themselves. And we're not saying as a country, workforce development is economic development. When we train people to work, we are we are bolstering the economy. And that has, you know, profound effect across all of our generations.
3: Uh, Rachel and I were looking at your website before we came out, and there's a lot of great information. Lots of issues listed on your website. What's what's your number one issue?
2: The economy, making sure that there is enough work to go around. Mm-hmm. You know, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. They raised my hand. I was the kid that was running around with the fatigues, and I played with GI Joe, and so it wasn't a stretch for anyone that I was joining the service. Mm-hmm. And I was not the smart kid, and I have this very vivid memory. I was part of my student council. I was like the student council president. And I believe that I got there not because of some sort of civic intelligence. It was because I was the popular kid. And uh, the borough president was giving out these awards. And I get up on stage and they're, they're going one by one. And it was who was going to Yale and who was going to Harvard. And then they get to me and I say, I just joined the Marine Corps. And you could literally hear a pin drop in the entire place. It's such a vivid, like very crystal clear memory for me. I may not have realized it then Mm -hmm. that I felt like there was nothing on Staten Island for me. Like Mm. I wasn't ready to like go out into the world in that way. I wasn't ready to go to college. Most certainly Mm -hmm. when I was 15 years old, I was reading at like a third grade level. And I had an amazing teacher who, you know, we were reading the killer angels, my sophomore year of high school. And it kept coming to the point where it was my turn to read. And I would give like every excuse. And he pulled me aside afterwards. And he was like, you have a reading problem. And we're going to look at the see how we're going to help you. And Mr. Williams, if he's out there, man, dude, you totally, you know, help me out. And he was a Marine and he was a police officer. So 25 years ago, I joined the Marine Corps Mm -hmm. because I felt like there was nothing on Staten Island for me. If you're in any one of my classes and you ask all of you who want to leave Staten Island, raise your hand. 85% of them are going to raise their hands and say that the first chance that they have to leave the borough, they're leaving. That's depressing. It is depressing because they feel like there's nothing here for them. Mm. How do we fix that? We create opportunity in the district and we're on the precipice of huge change in the country we absolutely have to get off of fossil fuels Mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Just like the New Deal and with all of the infrastructure investment and how our country was sort of erected, we need to now rebuild. That's about putting solar panels on every house. You know, my brother-in-law, He has solar panels on his roof. He is all about how much that's saving him. He is proud to say, like, I'm pumping out 110%. You know, they're actually giving me money back. And he's not thinking about the aesthetic look of those solar panels on his roof. If you look out the window and you see these atrocious telephone poles and all these wires, you know, going from left to right and crisscrossing around, there was a time when they were transitioning from candlelight that people were looking at those poles going... Those are gross looking. And yet you come to recognize that that's what you need to be able to live. Every opportunity that we have to create renewable energy, we have to take those opportunities. And there are jobs there. And it's not just jobs in setting up or installing. It's the jobs of maintenance. It's the jobs of accounting. And there are businesses that can be built by people who live in the community. They can walk to work. When people hear somebody talk about green energy, and I'm going to say like windmills, right? They think about people walking around in like white suits and no dust anywhere. And that is not the reality of moving to renewable resources. And how we get there is training workforces and creating opportunities and bringing business to the district. And that's where my focus is. And that's also my wheelhouse, creating those work opportunities for everyone in staten island and south brooklyn
1: at the fort hamilton coffee with your congressman um we were both in attendance and you had raised some points about gun control i think in relation to bump stock legislation
2: actually it was in relationship to research mm. Oh, right that's so right. That's right. hr 1478 uh it's currently just sitting uh energy and commerce uh the congressman didn't know exactly where it was we got a civics lesson for that question he agreed, ultimately, that we ought to be studying these things, I think was uh, was what he said. It just infuriates me. We can't even get to a place in our government where it's okay to agree that we should study something. Yeah. That's a complete slap in the face to anyone who has ever been affected by gun violence. Well, and to, it, any, to anybody who puts stock in objective <clears throat> research, full stop. Full stop, whatever topic. So this is something that is near and dear to me. September 24th of 2014- we had a young man named Cesar Sanchez who was tragically shot in the Barry homes in Dungan Hills on Staten Island. He was a larger than life young man, cut from the same cloth as me and Boyd, most certainly. And, you know, he was uh, giving, giving back to his community at every turn. And he was just tragically taken from us. And the young man who took his life. Was out on parole. He had killed someone a few years before. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this is a little a little hard to talk about. The deal was pled down to attempted murder, right? Uh, and at the time, that man had killed another man. It does not compute to me at all that that person would be would go, you know, would get a lighter sentence, and that would be out on parole within five years for, you know, for killing someone, right? And that he he killed Caesar a few hundred feet from where he had slain someone else years before that's tragic Mm -hmm. and terribly painful and and at the same time it it just makes me even more angry that that individual was not given the services that he needed to point his life in the right direction so it wasn't just the plea deal it was also how we as a country failed that person. Yeah. We not only need to control guns, we also need to make sure that we're helping those that are coming out of incarceration and giving them the necessary support that they need. The DA at the time, um, who who was that? The DA was Dan Donovan. So what was fueling that question for me to the congressman is that there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think of Caesar in some way. Uh, at our program, we put up a motivational sign that's outside the door every day. It's a different quote that the students pick, and above it, it says YABC, which is the name of the program, is Cesar Sanchez. Cesar's mom and I have been hosting a memorial race mm-hmm. in Cesar's honor for the last three years. We've raised more than $15,000 for young people who are at risk, who are active in their communities to go on to college or to trade opportunities. Mm-hmm and uh and we had been pushing for the city to rename the basketball courts at General Douglas MacArthur Park after Caesar. So there was sort of like so much convergence happening on asking that question of the congressman, he needs to know yeah. that this is something that is really important to his community and that young people are suffering out there all the time. I'm a member of Occupy the Block, a civic leaders organization on Staten Island. So Occupy the Block occupies the most uh, dangerous areas on Staten Island. It takes place from April to September, Mm -hmm. and it's two nights a week from 9 p.m. until midnight. It's about occupying the areas that need the most support, and it's about showing young people in the community there are alternatives to violence. There's a table set up, and all of the resources that are available throughout the city are there. So someone like myself, who's a senior director, who can immediately provide services is there to talk to the community, to meet them where they are, and to show them, you know, if you need something, we're here for you. And it's not just, hey, take this flyer and, and call on Monday. It's take my card and call me tonight if you need me. Right. While we can't statistically show that we're making a difference, I know that we're making a difference. I know every time somebody walks by and says, you know, hey, what's up? Or, hey, thanks for being out here. Or, hey, what are you guys doing here? Tell me what's going on. This is what our community needs. More people showing them, like, we're here for you. We love you. Nobody's giving up here.
1: That sounds like such a great thing. Like, are there ways for the members of
2: the community to contact you guys if they wanted to be involved in that? Like, put a link in the show notes. so I can connect them to the leadership. And I believe that this is something that needs to happen, you know, all over the country. And that's why I'm sitting here right now. And that's why I'm running for Congress. Yeah. Because this is just an extension of everything that I have done for the last 13 years. And it kind of is my whole life. I had an opportunity when I first got to Okinawa, Japan, to be a platoon sergeant. And it was just because I was the youngest and that's what they make the youngest do. And it really, it was there that I realized that I am all about helping people. You know, I, if I can help someone and give them, you know, what they need to be a success, that's how I know that I need to do things. That's how I know that I need to connect people and to make them feel their worth. Uh, So this, doing this, is an extension of that. And, you know, when I look out across the country and I see the people who are actually stepping up and running for office, we got back in at 2.30 this morning. (laughs) Oh my God, uh, well, thank you for
1: coming over here. Yes, from Washington,
2: D.C. And we were down in D.C. to attend the Victory Fund, which is an organization that supports LGBTQ candidates, that helps support them, that helps train them to run for office. We went to the conference as accomplices in making sure that, we could understand exactly how to support the LGBTQ community. What we learned there, what I learned there, I found so much inspiration in listening to LGBTQ elected officials and candidates and learning from them Mm -hmm. what it takes to change the narrative and to flip the script. Then I look out across the country and I see a lot of people like me. I am not a politician and I wasn't intending to run for political office at any point in time. My ladder was firmly leaned up against a wall and I was climbing that ladder pretty happily. Mm -hmm. I believe that it's going to be that energy going down to Washington DC, that energy in Our district Mm -hmm. listening to people every single day, including people in that conversation. You know, my motto of let's run together is not just because I'm a runner. If you
1: haven't seen it yet, go check out his uh, commercial. We'll put it in the show notes. It's great. (laughs)
2: All, uh, you know, I think all runners like to make, uh, you know, like to make running analogies, you know. Uh, So it was kind of easy. My wife, Natalie, is the one who came up with the let's run together motto. And it's because she gets me, is really what it is. Uh, And she knows that it's not just. I'm running for you. It's that we're all doing this together. As your congressman, I will always be listening in that way. Uh, these relationships that I'm making are not just going to be relationships that fall by the wayside because it was, oh, well, I needed your help for a minute. I'm on the ground, man. Yeah. Because of my work, I've seen it all. You know, I, I've had a kid taken from us because he was shot in the head. You know, I've had, a, you know, a, last year there were three kids on the same day that, that OD'd, one of those kids was my kid, you know, my kid who I helped, you know, every day for like the better part of two and a half years that I was on the phone with his dad when it was, you know, where his dad was saying, I don't know where he is and I don't know what to do. Have you seen him? Sometimes I like almost feel like some of that is too intimate. Like it's because of that, that I joined occupy the block. It's because of that, that I'm a member of tackling youth substance abuse steering committee. Yeah, it's because of that that I get up and go to work every day. You write a stump speech, and you're like, "Oh, I have to have this precise language." Right. And really, when I wanna tell the story of my young man, that when me and my work partner went to visit him in the hospital, and where he was at, like I'm saying that right now, yeah. and I can't even, it will, it could tear you up, yeah. because I remember like walking through the door, and he's lying in the ICU because it was touch and go. And the only thing that saved him was his dad because his dad came down at three o'clock in the morning and he wasn't even living in the house anymore. He was thrown out because his dad just had enough. And he came in and he was high and knocked on the door and dad let him in and then dad goes to bed and he comes downstairs for like a glass of water at like two or three o'clock in the morning. And he's saying like, I never got up to go for a glass of water. And there he was purple. On the couch and his dad had gone for the naloxone training and went because, you know, my son's an addict. So I have to, I have to be able to do something and this is what I can do. And then fast forward to me and my work partner, you know, walking into that ICU and seeing that young man and him looking up at us and just starting to cry because he wasn't crying because he was alive. He was crying because he was embarrassed. He knows that I have so much faith in him and he was embarrassed by his actions And like, that's the reason why I'm running for Congress. I'm running for Congress for him because I know that I'm never going to forget that interaction. And I'm also never going to forget the fact that he graduated high school. He's working right now full time. He's clean. He had to leave New York state to get the treatment that he needed. Why is that? Why do we not have a facility right on Staten Island where someone that needs that kind of help could go and get everything that she needs? Why is that not the case? there needs to be the right support. Why does he have to be so far away from his family? Why does his family have to take up the hardship of flying down to see him if they want to see him and support him?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that is really great here, and I've talked a little bit about this the last couple of podcasts, and I'm probably going to keep beating this dead horse. It's been really interesting to see how the community comes together and how the progressive groups have been coming together. And, you know, Boyd talked a little bit about sports and how that was bringing people together. You're talking about, you know, getting out in the community and bringing people together. And I think all around the country, we see so much of people being torn apart and pulled apart, building something new and seeing that everybody's committed to making that happen and not letting ourselves splinter and not letting ourselves be fragmented is a really encouraging thing. That's
2: how things always sort of come together. Mm -hmm. You know, even in my work, in the summertime, we engage a group Mm -hmm. and we may ask 100 and only 50 come. Right. Or we may ask 50 and only 25 will come. What we've learned to do from that is... We've learned to grow that group. They stick together, and they ultimately wind up being some of the most successful students in the process because they started together and they stick together. And then what we've also seen is they go out and they recruit others. And I do believe that what we're seeing, you know, across the district, are groups that are coming together. They may have one particular focus. It may be labor. It may be social justice issues. And now we're starting to recognize the intersectionality of it all. And in that. Now we're coming together and we're we're closing in. You know, last week the Metro Plus Healthcare for All had their gala, and it was great. And one of the things that they did was they recognized all of New York 11's uh, right. groups that were connected to healthcare. Wow! So they they recognized like over twenty groups. Fight Back Bay Ridge was in that wow. group. Uh, El Comino was in that group. Lots of progressive groups. You know, they all got an award together. And I thought that was amazing because that recognition is only going to power everyone. And, you know, this is a fight, man. We are in a fight now. You know, I know I say let's run together and all that stuff. And this is really, you know, we're in a fight. We're no longer fighting between right and left. Mm -hmm. We're fighting between right and wrong. Right. And that's going to take all of us. And saying this is what we want for District 11. This is what we want for South Brooklyn. This is what we want for Staten Island. And you know we want better roads, we want better transportation. We want to be able to walk to work, and any opportunity that we have to walk to work, there are opportunities across every sector to do that, to grow sectors, uh, to grow businesses, to bring small businesses back that are leaving that can't sustain, and then to do it across the country.
1: Yeah, and actually, that just uh, something I wanted to bring up earlier is it sounds like a lot of these things that you're involved in are first of their kind networks. And it sounds like there's a lot of that work going on in Staten Island that then could maybe be carried into other communities across the country. Or-
2: you know, Occupy the Block most certainly, I believe, is a structure. And I know that there are some other groups out there mm-hmm. uh, that are doing similar work. Yeah, There's a model there. I'm very fortunate to be sitting on the steering committee for tackling youth substance abuse, Mm -hmm. looking at the opioid epidemic on Staten Island and how do we address it. And, you know, part of that has a lot to do with, and I know Boyd mentioned this, part of that has a lot to do with celebrating the good, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Just last week, Recovery NYC, they were doing a recovery talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was at New York Moravian Church. And and there was only a handful of people there. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that everyone, you know, shared the message and tried to get it out there, we didn't get any coverage. No no one came to cover these beautiful human beings that were speaking from their hearts, you know, uh, families in recovery and addicts in recovery, and some who were so very recently clean and standing up there and talking to their stories with passion, you know, and for those of you that are out there, like look up recovery talks all throughout the district and go to one and listen to those stories and hear what people have to say about their experience in recovery and, and help support them mm-hmm. because that's how we will get truly to recovery. And people can feel like they don't have to be ashamed of what it is that they are battling with. There are probably thousands of sectoral approached based solutions and population wide change makers across you know the country that are trying to do this. Mm-hmm. We need to all come together. We need to create that model and make sure that it is designed for that particular area and take the best of the best and then do it and fund it. And to not half fund it, to not fund it for a year, and then pull it away and say, you know, oh, we can only afford to do this for a year. One of the ways would be like, say, closing loopholes for businesses abroad. Do legislators have power over that? We have power to do that. (laughs) We absolutely do.
3: How would you bring that spirit of collegiality to DC the way it exists now? Where do you start?
2: You know, when you say the term mediation, a lot of people don't know what mediation is and they have an idea talking about how to resolve conflict. And really it is getting a person to see inside of themselves what their answer is and giving the person the space to be able to do that. That requires an incredible amount of listening and courage. And sometimes that takes more time than you want it to take. And in my work, when you know that you could very simply tell a young person, here's what you have to do, Mm -hmm. and then they don't do it, And you're devastated because you gave, you told them what to do and they didn't do it. There's so much work that goes into having the understanding of your own identity and to not project your own experience on that person until their light bulb comes on and they say, oh no, of course I wouldn't want someone who molested children to be elected to a higher office. And you don't get there by shouting. You get there by asking them the questions that they need to hear within themselves. As a congressional leader, I believe that I'm bringing a skill set that doesn't exist down there. People are either going to be really cool with me or really not cool with me <laughs> to hear me constantly ask a yeah. lot of questions. And before I can go along and agree with you, I need to know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And if I don't think that you yourself know what you're saying, I'm going to keep asking questions. And that can be a frustrating process and an incredibly freeing process. Mm when a person actually comes to their own realization, like, actually, no, this is what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go along with what I'm being told I should because of my party affiliation. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go along with what's in my heart. And that's important to me.
1: So one of the things that we spoke about with our friend Alan from Fight Back Bay Ridge was this idea of Bay Ridge being a microcosm of the country itself. And, you know, we've got the urban areas, we've got the more suburban single family homes. So when you're talking about going to Washington as a mediator and being able to hopefully get dialogue going between these two sides, it, it strikes me that actually, this district is particularly suited to send
2: someone like that to Washington. You know, I think that the entire district is in fact, a microcosm of the country. That means to me that our district in particular needs a champion. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's disheartening me so much about the way that Congressman Donovan supported the tax plan. Mm -hmm. Was that he supports all of the ideas, supply side economics and trickle down economics, even though systematically. Even though Alan told him it doesn't work. Even (laughs) though Alan told him it doesn't work. And then the, oh, by the way, the reason why I'm not going to vote for it is because of salt. Yeah. So it shows me so very completely that we do not have a champion. He's only focused on the things that are going to keep him in office. And I suppose I would bring it back to. Being in a mediation, I believe that people love the concept of America. They may love it for different reasons, and it's the love of America that we we should all be focused on, Mm -hmm. right? And how do we get there? And what are the questions that we need to ask in order to get there? I believe that a mediator is able to ask those questions, you know?
1: What what kind of questions would you ask America if you what could ask America? What kind of questions would I ask
2: America? Well, yeah. I think that that does depend on who I am speaking with. I think one of the questions for, you know, somebody down in Alabama, you know, there was a quote I read in the paper, and I don't want to misquote it, so I'm going to sort of paraphrase it. And it was, and you guys might have seen this, it was, I'm conflicted between voting for a child molester and a candidate that supports abortion. Just everybody take that in for a minute. That is, wow, you know, and of course, I'm thinking off the cuff here. And if I'm sitting, you know, with that person, I guess the question that I would have for them is, so what I'm hearing you say Mm -hmm. is you value human life differently. Mm -hmm. And then I would want to hear from that person what their value of human life is, because I believe that once they start talking about what it means to actually value a life, especially if they have a child right they would start to answer for themselves mm-hmm. that they would not be comparing a human being that exists on this planet and an unborn child and that they would be able to see the difference between the two and that they wouldn't be looking at abortion in that light or comparing it the key to it all is empathy because it's going along with the person that is struggling with something that you're trying to get them to see differently mm-hmm. and i know that as americans we want it all to happen right now and we want everything to be fixed And it took us, you know, an awful long time to get into this mess. And it's going to take us some time to get out of it. In my work, I see this all the time. I see young people who come to us feeling like nobody believes in me. And I was going to say a piece of shit. And I suppose, I guess (laughs) I think boy curse so I can curse, right? You know, they actually feel like they're a piece of shit, that they're a failure, that nobody believes in me. I'm being compared to all these other people. And and we show them that they're not. Mm. And that happens at the speed of trust.
3: Rachel and I, when we were looking at your website, we saw, I think it was commute, you know, he's running for Congress, not governor of New York state, so... (laughs) We
2: need to invest in our transportation systems. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that that's a state issue, that's a city issue, and really, it is also a federal issue. So the district has some of the longest commutes in the entire country, Mm -hmm. right? I think the average is about an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. A few months ago, there were a series of convenings because they're changing some of the express bus services. I actually, on a morning run, ran up Highland Boulevard, handing out cards, making sure that people knew that the actual convenings were happening, because I don't think that they were publicized enough. (laughs) I
1: I thought you were going to say you were letting people know that you could run it faster than City Transit could get them there. (laughs)
2: it's, it's, It's funny that you say that. I can. Actually, I've wanted to get out of the car and just sort of like run the nine miles to work. And the only thing is that I would then have to run home and that would be okay so long as I would be able to take a shower in between, you know. (laughs) So uh, in 2008, the reason why the Staten Island Expressway started its transformation is because the congressman, McMahon, went and got $150 million for an infrastructure project. He brought back money for the district and he saw that as a two-part project from Victory Boulevard to the Verrazano Bridge, and that eventually there would be a new Gothel's Bridge, mm-hmm. and that the Victory Boulevard to the Gothel's Bridge would be a whole other section, a whole another $150 million or thereabout. The congressman wasn't re-elected, and that project was never completed. Now we have a sparkling new Gothel's Bridge that is four lanes bottlenecking into the exact same roadway that was built some 50 or 60 years ago. Federal infrastructure projects are how we built this country. And we can yell at the MTA all day. The mayor can throw arrows at the governor and the governor can throw rocks back at the mayor. And the reality is that there is not enough MTA money. There's not enough funding to fix all of the transportation infrastructure problems we have. We need real dollars, a trillion or more in the country, fixing what's broken. And coming up with innovative solutions for the problems that can never be fixed, like the colonial roads that are never going to be able to be improved upon. We can't widen them. We have to figure out ways around them. And it's going to take someone with the focus of getting on the transportation committee to fight for these dollars and to bring them back. And the reality of leadership saying that we don't have money for that is just an excuse. In 2009, when we were completely on our butts, we invested billions of dollars in infrastructure to put people back to work.
1: Well, and that seems like something where, as a party, the Democratic Party has a real opportunity because that's not just a problem for Staten Island. That is a nationwide problem. Talking, for example, about trying to get younger people good-paying jobs, that kind of work leads straight into, I know you're, you're very involved with some of the unions locally. Do you want to talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Any opportunity to talk about Local 3, uh, our Local 3 family. My dad was a union member. Mm. And And what's Local 3? So Local 3 is the IBEW, the the Electrician's Union. And this Uh, is the Spectrum Strike? Spectrum Strike. So there are 1,800 Local 3 union member families who for nearly nine months have been railing against the corporate greed of Charter Spectrum. There is no collective bargaining going on at all. Uh, In very recent time, they basically just walked away from the table yet again because no one is willing to turn the screw on Charter. There are some ways for them to be brought up on charges at this point for not collective bargaining. Right. So the fact that these families are being drained of their resources and their spirits Mm -hmm. is just absolutely appalling to me. I think that the entire country is watching. And these infrastructure projects would be ways for us to build labor back up, to create opportunities for organized labor and give families in our district the opportunity to have the same security that my dad had when he brought our family to Staten Island and was able to buy a home because he had the guarantee of a paycheck and he had security that he was able to look forward to. When those individuals need me, I'm showing up. Mm-hmm. I'm showing up because whatever soapbox I can stand on and scream that something needs to be done to put these people back to work. I'm going to take that opportunity.
1: What are things that
2: we as members of the community can do? Like, Who do we lobby? Who do we talk to? Like, I think the biggest thing is to share the message. Mm-hmm. They're fighting against a cable company. That cable company is doing everything that they can to keep them completely blacked out from the media. So the more that we share it and the more that we find innovative ways to get the message down to D.C. to whoever it is going to be that champions the issue, because that's the second thing, to start holding them accountable, once we put that pressure on, something can get done. Uh, Any elected official you're in front of, you need to remind them, do you know that the the local three is still out on strike? They still have not found a resolution. They're still being blacked out. And then going to those Twitter accounts, connecting to those brothers and sisters out there and sharing that message, retweeting as much as possible. And and if you're listening, they're on the hashtag, hashtag And hashtag Local 3.
3: Well, I, I love my Local 3 because I'm an ESL teacher and that's a private industry. And when my work unit was organizing for a contract. We were petitioning like students and, and like some IBEW workers walked by and were like, unions, sign me up. I'll, I'll sign your petition. So,
1: Well, and that's great. That really speaks to that solidarity. This right to organize labor and this right to collectively bargain is something that's under assault and
2: it's something we can only improve by working with each other. Amazon is getting ready to build a facility in Staten Island. On one hand, you could be very excited that there are 1500 new jobs that are coming to the district. And on the other hand, if you talk to anyone who has ever done that work, anybody who has ever worked in a warehouse and has worked for seven hours straight without a break or had to document their break down to the second and weren't even allowed to use the bathroom during the time that they weren't on break. Those kinds of conditions are not conducive to people being happy and having a living wage and having security for their future and upward mobility and having health care. What is that health care
1: is a sixth of the U.S. economy and there are things happening in Washington legislatively that have not been studied, going back to what we talked about earlier. That are going to impact a sixth of our
2: economy. And what that means to jobs in America. Yeah. Going back to intersectionality. Back in May, I was asked to go speak with the congressman about the healthcare issues. And I was asked to talk a little bit about workforce development and about the challenges inside the district. Uh, and if the bill was voted on back then, you know, it was going to mean several thousand jobs uh, had the potential to be cut. So this cut is going to mean jobs. And in our district, We have a growing sector, and that sector is healthcare. So, how are those cuts going to affect those that are in jobs? Now, to take it to the people that I've been committed to every day, the young people that I've promised to help, they're learning to become CNAs or EKG technicians or phlebotomy technicians. And we're saying that when you're done with training, you're going to have a job because this sector is growing. And those jobs are going to be cut because there aren't going to be new facilities opening, or there are going to be fewer healthcare providers that are going to be needed, and it all just crashes in on each other.
3: My parents who aren't working, but you know, if their healthcare costs are going to go up, I don't think their social security revenue is going to increase. Their income
1: is pretty fixed right no, no. now. No, Paul Ryan has promised it will not increase; it will in fact decrease.
2: <laughs> and why is that? Because the tax plan just allows for. You know, those that are the top 1% to take more, mm-hmm. to have more. And we have one quick fix for Social Security. Just raise the amount of money that is being put into it. Raise that level and we can fix it. So we should be doubling down on one of the greatest social experiments of ever.
1: All that means is raising the cap on where people stop contributing. which Right, raising I, the cap. Yeah, I don't have the numbers to hand right now, but it stops pretty low. When you consider that middle class in the country right now is considered earning, what, 200K a year. But one of the other issues that we keep running into is pharmacy costs and pharmaceutical costs. And I look at, for example, a family member with epilepsy whose drugs would cost $25,000 a year if she didn't have health insurance and they weren't covered.
2: This is something my family is directly affected by. We have health care and our agency actually provides the opportunity. We have like a deductible and we have to pay certain amounts of money. You know, my, my wife has an incurable disease. Her medication is expensive. We ultimately every year come out of pocket because of the fact that her meds cost more. You know, it's funny. You go into the pharmacy to pick up the medication and the person that's there is almost afraid to tell you how much the medication is going to cost. Yeah. So clearly the reason why that is somebody has been yelling at them about the cost of the medication. Yeah. And there's almost this fear of the human interaction that they're having. So there's one in particular area that I know needs attention. Mm -hmm. That's in the area of cannabis. We're very fortunate in you know, New York State that marijuana for medicinal purposes has been passed. There aren't enough conditions that are actually on th- that schedule. There should be many more. Fortunately, one of her conditions is covered, so she has access to cannabis. And the problem, it's not covered by my insurance, and it's incredibly expensive. So we're paying upwards of like $600 a month wow. to get her the medication that she needs. And in reality... It actually isn't enough that she needs to be completely off of the opioids that she unfortunately needs to take. Right. In the morning, her cannabis is by her bedside and the opioids are down in the medicine chest. We need to start moving the ball forward. We need to start moving the conversation forward to um, at the very least reschedule to move cannabis to a place where it can be covered under insurance so that it doesn't cost what it's costing us right now.
1: Again, going back to research where it can be properly researched right now because of where it is on the schedule and because of all these laws, we can't even research it effectively.
2: Absolutely. How many more conditions could it be helping? I'm certain that there are probably dozens more that we would see immediate help in. I have literally watched Natalie, her entire demeanor, just a wave of relief wash over her face when she's been able to take it so that's why for me it's a no brainer i'm going to pay whatever i have to pay you know to get her that help so how many families across america are making that choice right and how many families across america are paying exorbitant amounts of money just to get the medicines that they need they could be paying less if we just looked at it differently
1: you know you, you don't have a choice if somebody in your family gets very ill you don't have a choice. You go into debt. You sell your house. You you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But you have to make sure they're OK. You have to take care of them. They're your family. It strikes me as just so wrong that the society we live in punishes people for that.
3: Like with all of these health care costs, I wonder how many people are spending money on health care that they're not spending on education mm-hmm. or on starting a business.
2: We're just taking on more debt. Mm hmm is really what it looks like. You know, We go down to the penny because we need to make sure that we have this available for her. And when it doesn't come down to the penny, we'll go into debt because that's what we have to do. We need representation in Washington that doesn't just hear that story and go, I should do something about that. I'll look into it and have my staff get back to you. We need a representation in Washington who has lived it, who has gone through it, I will never, never forget that first time that I watched Natalie have cannabis and feel relief and then just wishing that we could, you know, how do we replicate this as quickly as possible and what is it going to cost me? And okay, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, that's fine with me.
1: If you have somebody in your life who's going through it, you have a reason to learn about it. You have a reason to know your
2: way through the healthcare system, and otherwise you're lost. You don't have a choice. Yeah. My company, in order to keep healthcare costs down, they have us do all the administrative work. We're constantly submitting the statements and making the payments and checking explanations of benefits. And so you learn to like just see where the money is going and how it's being spent and who is getting what and what the disparities are. And then we go to Natalie's doctor down at Temple University, and the doctor prescribes a medication for an intense infection that she has. We're in Philadelphia. We're coming back to Staten Island, and you call the pharmacy, and they say, well, the insurance company didn't approve it. So what can we do? Oh, well, we'll keep putting it through. Well, what else can I do? Well, you can call them. Well, what's the number? So you call them. Yeah. And then they tell you that the reason why they're not approving it is because they only approve it for 14 days at two times a day. And the Harvard-educated doctor mm-hmm. wants the patient to take it for 20 days at three times a day. And, well, they just don't approve that. So now you're on the floor, on your hands and knees, mm-hmm. saying, what is it going to cost me? Mm-hmm. And in this particular instance, that first time it cost us $1,800. And you're begging them, like, terms of endearment style yeah. to, you know, please just give my wife the medicine. Why? Why? That's when you are clear on where the problems are.
3: So what's the website and where can people find out more about you?
2: So the website is www.DeVitoForCongress.com. Twitter is MDeVitoJR. And there you'll find that I make the statement that I believe in the promise of the American dream. And when I think about what that means to me, I think of my child. The fact that my daughter, uh, who's Amerasian, who spent most of her life living in Okinawa, Japan very fortunately we were able to bring her to the United States to go to school and to have more opportunity and she chose a profession and at 21 years old she is working and she's contributing to the greater good of America and she's contributing to the security of her own future she expects that America is gonna like be there for her and we have an obligation to set our country in a direction that, Allows for her to know that when she gets to her destination, that she's going to have the dignity of a good retirement, not have to worry, be able to feel pride in her community and in her country. And we owe that to all Americans. The only way that I feel that we get there is if we create infrastructure opportunities for young people that we're all in this together. And that we start to recognize that it's going to take time to get there. And we may make some missteps along the way. We're not going to be afraid of those missteps. We're only going to allow them to fuel us more and to get where we want to be. It's not a zero-sum game. It has to be a positive sum. We have to look for every opportunity in this country now more than ever before to ensure that no one is marginalized, no one is left behind, that everyone has the same opportunities. Now's the time. Before... I had my focus and I was doing, and I felt like I was doing good. And and that's not enough. You have to get involved. You have to stop and think about ways that you can improve our country, our city, our district, your street corner, whatever it is that makes sense to you. Just get out there and start moving us in the direction that we all need to go in to ensure that there is true equality for everyone.
1: It's a great message. Yeah. And on that note, I guess, thank you so much for coming in and having this conversation with us.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Michael, for sitting down and sitting with us for that interview. Um, It was awesome to listen through it as an editor. And Rachel, I'm sure it was awesome to sit through it. It was a good discussion. So... I just want to let everyone know our community board episode is still in the works, so keep a lookout for that in the next couple of weeks.
1: And be aware that while we're going to get it out to you as soon as we can, the deadline for community board applications
0: is the 15th of February. 15th of February. So we will hope to get that out at least two weeks before the application deadline so you can get kind of... full-fledged ideas to what's involved with the community board before you apply, but definitely it's easy to get research. I would recommend Gotham Gazette as a great way of just getting background on what the community boards are and what they do. Um, And then in addition, our next Congressional Contenders episode will be... Mike DeSellas. And that'll be coming out this January as well. So we have a lot lined up. We are working overtime to get more information out to you guys. And especially as 2018 starts ramping up, it looks like it's going to be not just a blue wave, but a blue flood. Blue tsunami. (laughs) So we really need to step up our game for 2018. I just want to thank everyone for all the work they put in in 2017.
1: Yeah, it's it's been an amazing year. And I know we're all looking forward to 2018 not just being about resistance, but also about building
0: yeah and the friendships that we've all made during this year i think have been absolutely invaluable so let's hashtag resistance fam and everybody this november
1: remember we've got the primaries for federal office in june and then september will be state so full ticket plenty of people in the primaries make sure you put those dates on your
0: calendar if you thought 2017 was crazy with just city council and mayor (laughs) things are buckle up And this is our time to make that difference and make that change.
1: So until next time, stay Stay free, free, Bay Ridge.
0: Ridge.